Chapters three, four, five, and six of *The Hangman's Daughter* by Ambrose Bierce. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three. Having commended the soul of the dead man to the intercession of the Blessed Virgin and the Holy Saints, we left the accursed spot. But as we withdrew, I looked back at the lovely child of the hangman. She stood where I had left her, looking after us. Her fair white brow was still crowned with the wreath of primroses, which gave an added charm to her wonderful beauty of feature and expression, and her large dark eyes shone like the stars of a winter midnight. My companions, to whom the hangman's daughter was a most unchristian object, reproved me for the interest that I manifested in her, but it made me sad to think this sweet and beautiful child was shunned and despised through no fault of her own. Why should she be made to suffer blame because of her father's dreadful calling? And was it not the purest Christian charity which prompted this innocent maiden to keep the vultures from the body of a fellow-creature whom in life she had not even known, and who had been adjudged unworthy to live? It seemed to me a more kindly act than that of any professed Christian who bestows money upon the poor. Expressing these feelings to my companions, I found, to my sorrow, that they did not share them. On the contrary, I was called a dreamer and a fool who wished to overthrow the ancient and wholesome customs of the world. Everyone, they said, was bound to execrate the class to which the hangman and his family belonged, for all who associated with such persons would surely be contaminated. I had, however, the temerity to remain steadfast in my conviction, and with due humility questioned the justice of treating such persons as criminals because they were a part of the law's machinery by which criminals were punished. Because in the church the hangman and his family had a dark corner specially set apart for them that could not absolve us from our duty as servants of the Lord to preach the gospel of justice and mercy and give an example of Christian love and charity. But my brothers grew very angry with me, and the wilderness rang with their loud vociferations, so that I began to feel as if I were very wicked, although unable to perceive my error. I could do nothing but hope that heaven would be more merciful to us all than we are to one another. In thinking of the maiden, it gave me comfort to know that her name was Benedicta. Perhaps her parents had so named her as a means of blessing to one whom no one else would ever bless. But I must relate what a wonderful country it was into which we were now arrived. Were we not assured that all the world is the Lord's, for he made it, we might be tempted to think such a wild region the kingdom of the evil one. Far down below our path the river roared and foamed between great cliffs, the great points of which seemed to pierce the very sky. On our left, as we gradually rose out of this chasm, was a black forest of pines frightful to see, and in front of us a most formidable peak. This mountain, despite its terrors, had a comical appearance, for it was white and pointed like a fool's cap, and looked as if someone had put a flour-sack on the knave's head. After all, it was nothing but snow. Snow in the middle of the glorious month of May! Surely the works of God are wonderful and almost past belief. The thought came to me that if this old mountain should shake his head, the whole region would be full of flying snow. 
we were not a little surprised to find that in various places along our road the forest had been cleared away for a space large enough to build a hut and plant a garden. Some of these rude dwellings stood where one would have thought that only eagles would have been bold enough to build, but there is no place, it seems, free from the intrusion of man, who stretches out his hand on everything, even that which is in the air. When at last we arrived at our destination, and beheld the temple and the house erected in this wilderness to the name and glory of our beloved saint, our hearts were thrilled with pious emotions. Upon the surface of the pine-covered rock was a cluster of huts and houses, the monastery in the midst, like a shepherd surrounded by his flock. The church and monastery were of hewn stone, of noble architecture, spacious and comfortable. May the good God bless our entrance into this holy place. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 I have been in this wilderness for a few weeks, but the Lord, too, is here, as everywhere. My health is good, and this house of our beloved saint is a stronghold of the faith, a house of peace, and asylum for those who flee from the wrath of the evil one, a rest for all who bear the burden of sorrow. Of myself, however, I cannot say so much. I am young, and although my mind is at peace, I have so little experience of the world and its ways that I feel myself particularly liable to error and accessible to sin. The course of my life is like a rivulet which draws its silver thread smoothly and silently through friendly fields and flowery meadows, yet knows that when the storms come and the rains fall it may become a raging torrent, defiled with earth and whirling away to the sea the wreckage attesting the madness of its passion and its power. Not sorrow nor despair drew me away from the world into the sacred retreat of the church, but a sincere desire to serve the Lord. My only wish is to belong to my beloved saint, to obey the blessed mandates of the church, and as a servant of God, to be charitable to all mankind, whom I dearly love. The church is, in truth, my beloved mother, for my parents having died in my infancy, I, too, might have perished without care had she not taken pity on me, fed and clothed me, reared me as her own child, and, oh, what happiness that will be for me, poor monk, when I am ordained and receive holy orders as a priest of the Most High God! Always I think and dream of it, and try to prepare my soul for that high and sacred gift. I know I can never be worthy of this great happiness, but I do hope to be an honest and sincere priest, serving God and man according to the light that is given from above. I often pray heaven to put me to the test of temptation, that I may pass through the fire unscathed and purified in mind and soul. As it is, I feel the sovereign peace which, in this solitude, lulls my spirit to sleep, and all life's temptations and trials seem far away, like perils of the sea, to one who can but faintly hear the distant thunder of the waves upon the beach. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 our superior, Father Andreas, is a mild and pious gentleman. Our brothers live in peace and harmony. They are not idle, neither are they worldly nor arrogant. They are temperate, not indulging too much in the pleasures of the table, a praiseworthy moderation, for all this region, far and wide, the hills and the valleys, the river and forest, with all that they contain, belongs to the monastery. 
The woods are full of all kinds of game, of which the choicest is brought to our table, and we relish it exceedingly. In our monastery a drink is prepared from malt and barley, a strong, bitter drink, refreshing after fatigue, but not to my taste very good. The most remarkable thing in this part of the country is the salt mining. I am told that the mountains are full of salt. How wonderful are the works of the Lord! In pursuit of this mineral man has penetrated deep into the bowels of the earth by means of shafts and tunnels, and brings forth the bitter marrow of the hills into the light of the sun. The salt I have myself seen in red, brown, and yellow crystals. The work gives employment to our peasants and their sons, with a few foreign laborers, all under the command of an overseer, who is known as the salt-master. He is a stern man, exercising great power, but our superior and the brothers speak little good of him, not from any unchristian spirit, but because his actions are evil. The salt-master has an only son. His name is Rokus, a handsome but wild and wicked youth. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 The people hereabout are a proud and stubborn race. I am told that in an old chronicle they are described as descendants of the Romans, who in their day drove many tunnels into these mountains to get out the precious salt, and some of these tunnels are still in existence. From the window of my cell I can see these giant hills in the black forests which at sunset burn like great firebrands along the crests against the sky. The forefathers of these people, after the Romans, were, I am told, more stubborn still than they are, and continued in idolatry after all the neighboring peoples had accepted the cross of the Lord our Saviour. Now, however, they bow their stiff necks to the sacred symbol, and soften their hearts to receive the living truth. Powerful as they are in body, in spirit they are humble and obedient to the word. Nowhere else did the people kiss my hand so fervently as here, although I am not a priest, an evidence of the power and victory of our glorious faith. Physically they are strong and exceedingly handsome in face and figure, especially the young men. The elder men, too, walk as erect and proud as kings. The women have long golden hair, which they braid and twist about their heads very beautifully, and they love to adorn themselves with jewels. Some have eyes whose dark brilliance rivals the luster of the rubies and garnets they wear about their white necks. I am told that the young men fight for the young women as stags for does. Ah, what wicked passions exist in the hearts of men! But since I know nothing of these things, nor shall ever feel such unholy emotions, I must not judge and condemn. Lord, what a blessing is the peace with which Thou hast filled the spirits of those who are Thine own! Behold, there is no turmoil in my breast. All is calm there, as in the soul of a babe which calls Abba, dear father, and so may it ever be. End of chapter 6